Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from His love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though He was God, He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, He gave up His divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When He appeared in human form, He humbled Himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated Him to the place of the highest honor and gave Him the name above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you, and now that I am away, it is even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. Do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Hold firmly to the word of life. Then on the day of Christ's return, I will be proud that I did not run the race in vain and that my work was not useless. The word of the Lord. So Caleb and I, last week after church, headed down to Churchill Square and we gathered with the faithful and we sat before the large altar of Oilers. And I must tell you, it's way more fun to cheer for a team that's a winner. I'm still a Vancouver fan. I'm always going to be a Vancouver fan, but I am strapped into this bandwagon. (laughs) Oh, fighting words, fighting words. As we were coming back from Churchill Square, we rolled the LRT down, and, and, and if, you're, if you're interested, we're going to do this again if it falls on a weekend, and we'll let everybody know, maybe we can go down and, and, uh, and, and have some fun together, and it's just a fantastic experience that the city has put on. And We rode back on the LRT, and it was so interesting, there was a sea of orange and blue, and everybody was cheering, and everyone was really excited, and that this kind of electricity was in the air as everyone was united and had come together. And it was this remarkable feeling because we had one purpose. And that purpose was to cheer on our team. And everybody coming together, there was a sense of belonging. Except for the one Calgary fan in their red jersey who was cowering in the corner. But you know, I, 
I wondered as I was watching all of this happening that it wasn't six months ago that we were all at one another. We were in pretty significant disagreement and we were stressed and we were anxious and we were angry. What's the difference? What happened to move us to this place where some really ugly shirts suddenly make a difference to our ability to be with one another? And I think it comes down to the tense of trouble. That when we have all of these things happening around us, the bad times, it begins to pull, it begins to fray, it begins to make us anxious. Now when things are good, when our team is winning, when we're all of one mind, we're all moving in one direction, we get caught up in that and things somehow just seem easier when life is good. But that is not the way that Jesus calls His disciples to live because Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. It's one of the promises of Scripture that we don't really like. Last week, I talked about the gray zone and this time that we're in where we're living with ambiguity and we're uncertain about the direction that things are going. And this moment in time where our team is doing well is a distraction from the reality that's around us. But if they get past Colorado, they've got to face the next level. And if they get past that and Lord Stanley's cup comes to Edmonton, we will be euphoric. But do you remember last year's winner? You see, that euphoria is limited. It will only take us so far. The distractions will only serve to keep these feelings at bay for a certain length of time. When I was in business, we had a saying, when things are up, I'm up. And when business is down, I'm down. My well-being, and I think this is probably a shared reality, our well-being is deeply influenced by the times and circumstances in which we live. If our life is shaped by the cultural events around us, and when things are rough, our whole state of being will begin to slip downward. Our well-being will be put in jeopardy. We will be stressed, anxious, burnt out. Terms that you hear all the time when you run into people on the street. When it's down, I'm down. And so we asked last week, how do we live through these gray zones? How do we be faithful in those moments where we face disappointment, disruption, and disorientation. And Paul's word to the Philippian church gave us a roadmap for faithful living. 
while we navigate this gray zones. And he talks about this awkward word of slave and saint. Because the truth is, I don't really want to be either one of those. I certainly don't want to be a slave because that means I'm submitting to a master. And I want to be free. I want to be autonomous. I want to have my own choices come true. So slavery is certainly not where we want to go. But you see, saint is a high ideal, and that's way too much trouble. Because that means I have to be good. Just ask Karen how hard that is for me. Being good all the time is not possible. But even being good some of the time perhaps isn't even desirable because we want to live our own lives. Paul talks about us being signposts. Where are we directing people? You see, if we can't learn to live in the gray zone in a way that is faithful to Jesus, we will still be a signpost. That is not optional. You're made in the image of God. You can't escape that. But where your sign is pointing is entirely optional. And so learning to live in the gray zone and being faithful in these moments of time means our lives become beacons toward Jesus Christ. Karen and I were at assembly this week, and a good friend of mine, Anna, she's a chaplain in Lethbridge in one of the prisons, and she was speaking about the lighthouse, and she was talking about the song lighthouse, and she said she hates this song because we don't go towards the lighthouse. We move away from the lighthouse. The lighthouse is the warning of the rocks and the shoals and the things that we not... We don't want to run up on them. And and I think in that metaphor, we're called to be lighthouses. Certainly drawing attention to ourselves, but not to come to us and for the purpose of being the thing that people look at, but to point toward something. Toward freedom, toward safety, toward Jesus where life can be full. And this is where our identity comes when we put Jesus first. This is built from our relationship with Him. It is part of the role that we have, the job that we have. We're not called to isolate, which is such a temptation when we're in these stressful times. We're called to press forward and to bring the Gospel to a world that so desperately needs hope. To allow our Focus on Jesus, our relationship with Jesus, our being the church to shape the way we interact with others. To have our salvation impact our community. And for our community to be shaped by love and unity, allowing Jesus to bring us together when there's so many forces that are driving us apart. Away from the problems of societal persecution is what Paul is writing to the Philippians about. You see, they were pressed on all sides. And in these moments of disruption, disorientation, disappointment, disillusion, the gray zone that they lived in, it was beginning to take its toll. And so he presses further in chapter 2 and he says, be united. You see, what was going on in the church in the midst of all of this resistance and persecution was they were beginning 
to act out of their poverty and their marginalization as opposed to acting out of their freedom and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. You see, we have a choice. We can root ourselves in Christ or we can root ourselves in the problems of our day. And when we root ourselves in Christ, we can remain united. We can remain faithful. We can do the things that Jesus has called us to do and we can do it in spite of the suffering. And we saw that when Paul was in the prison and he's still singing out with Silas in the midst of incredible pain. They still had joy. But this church, after a long season of suffering, had lost their, their place and were rooted in something that wasn't giving them life. And there was dissension happening from within. And so Paul writes to them, he calls them back to the one who gave them life. And he pulls no punches in this. Do you love me? Are you moved by Jesus? Do you have fellowship? Are your hearts tender? Like these are, these are rhetorical questions that he's asking because if the answer is not yes to each of them, then there's something deeply wrong. Yes, we love you, Paul. Yes, we've been moved by Jesus. Yes, we have fellowship. We are the church. And yes, our hearts are tender. We're in pain. We are suffering. So Paul says, then make me truly happy. What a profound statement. He's saying my happiness, my ability to be well is wrapped up in you and the choices that you make. So make me happy. And remember, Paul is sitting in prison when he writes this. This is pretty manipulative. I swear if I end up in prison because I'm a pastor, I'm writing you a letter like that. Don't be selfish. Be of one mind. Agree wholeheartedly. Love one another. Work together. Don't try to impress others, but be humble. And think of them as better than yourselves. Don't look only to your own interests. He's not saying your interests don't matter. But he's saying in in this midst of a gray zone where your interests are so overwhelming and occupying all of your time, take time to look outwards. Take an interest in those around you and have the same attitude as Christ Jesus had when He came to earth. In other words, think the way Jesus does. See, Paul takes Christian unity seriously. So much so that he takes the church on a journey into the motivations of Jesus who enjoyed the privileges of heaven. Glory, honor, deity. And he put all that aside. He came and he emptied himself Not of being God, but He emptied Himself of all the privileges of being God. And He took on the form of a man. But not just a man. A slave. But not just a slave. Death. But not just death. The death on a cross. The death of a criminal. And that's how far Jesus went to ensure we could be saved. 
And so Paul is asking us to think. He's asking us to consider how we interact with people. To place our own interests beneath the interests of others as he did. Paul is asking the church to be like Jesus. This is a demanding request. This is, this is really, really hard. It's countercultural, it's counterintuitive, it's counterhuman. Because from birth, we are self interested, we're self absorbed, we're selfish. You see, we start off formed by others responding to the attention-seeking sobs. Just ask any mother of an infant child. We are born self-centered. And that switch of focus doesn't come easily. It takes work. It takes self-denial. But it doesn't mean neglecting our own needs or the needs of our family. Jesus did self-care. It's written again and again he would remove himself from the crowds. In spite of their overwhelming need, he would take time. He would go away. He would be with his Father. So it's very clear this isn't about pouring ourselves out to the point of exhaustion. But then Jesus would come back and he would engage with those who needed him deeply. So to be like Jesus is to care for ourselves so that we can care for others. And it does mean sacrificing some of our own interests. Sometimes we just want others to do for us while we do nothing for them. And Paul condemns this way of being. You see, Jesus didn't consider that His privileges must be held at all costs. But if you're like me, we can stubbornly cling to our own interests instead of putting our interests behind others and putting theirs first. This is selfishness when we do this. So Paul creates a list. And he's so good at creating lists. He says, agree with one another. Love one another. Work with one another. And think as one. Don't be selfish. Don't try to be impressive. Don't only look to your own interests. Consider the interests of others. In other words, be united and be engaged. Because we need both. It's not just about us coming together and saying we are one, but the world doesn't matter. We're going to close our doors, circle our wagons, be the holy huddle, and keep the world at bay. So we are safe during this time of insecurity, of uncertainty, of disorientation. No, he's saying, come together and then go right back out. and Be engaged with the world that needs signposts. Because the temptation is to huddle, to hoard, to keep ourselves safe. And Paul is saying, Keep up the good work. Look outside yourselves, even if it means suffering so that we can be faithful. This is not a popular message. This is not an easy message. This is not one that is going to sell tickets. But Paul's letter was intended to be an encouragement for people that stood in the raging sea of persecution 
and antagonism. Something far more significant than what we're facing today. But suffering that tears at the fabric of community, whether that be physical persecution or the slow kind of drip, drip, drip of social media that just tears at us and frustrates us and just, just demoralizes us. We are called to be united as a church even if we're under threat. Paul is calling his beloved brothers and sisters to stand firm, to hold firm in the Spirit. And in doing so, we will experience renewed unity with one another. And it's this unity that Paul hoped that the Philippians would experience and it was rooted in the Spirit of God. This does not mean that the Philippians were to become passive. These are practical deeds. It is the outpouring of our love that actually draws us together into unity. But it flows from the Spirit. It comes from hard work. And it is a paradox. It's all God and only God that can do this. We are incapable of doing this. It must be unleashed from within with the Spirit that dwells in us. God is the only one who can draw us into this kind of life. And yet also at the same time, it is about us being faithful and being responsive to that call on our lives. So how do we live this story? When I was in seminary, one of my professors would always say to us, and he would press this point home, discern your motives. Are you trying to commend or command? And to commend is the oughts, right? You ought to be united. You ought to be faithful. You ought to read your Bible and pray every day. It's, it's encouraging you. It's inviting you into this relationship with Jesus Christ. A command is you will. You will read your Bible. You will pray. It is an order. And that one is about control. Control never works. I recently went through a workshop that spoke about anxiety and burnout. And the instructor spoke about our desire to control is what actually causes our anxiety to rise up from within. And the Philippians had every reason to be anxious. And Paul was steering them away from this destructive engagement of control that had begun within that community between two women. And he's saying, control never works. And he's drawing us into this way that unites, this love for one another. And this is a really hard balance to maintain. Commend and control. You see, this shows up in our relationship as parents with our children. It shows up as in relationships in our homes between our partners. It shows up as pastors and missionaries as we see our people and we long for them to find freedom in Jesus and we can so easily move from commend to command. We're always tempted to control the situation. And the sad part is we can even think we're doing the right thing and be misguided in our love as we slip over the line from commend to control. And one of the clues that it's happening is that you're feeling 
anxious. You see, when I am looking at what's happening in our community, or when I'm looking at what's happening in our denomination, or I look at what's happening in our city, province, country, or world, if I feel sadness, that's okay. But if I feel anxious, it means I've taken my eyes off of Jesus. You see, anxiety has this byproduct, and that byproduct is fear. And fear leads to preservation. And preservation leads to disunity. And Jesus is telling us to not be afraid. Fear not, for I have overcome the world that you will have trouble in. This is the struggle. So we work. We may even work hard. We work to show the results of our salvation. We work to obey God. We work to have deep reverence and a fear, not of anxiousness, but a fear of our Lord being captivated by Jesus so our lives are shaped by a reverent obedience. To be fearful of God, to have fear of the Lord, means we care about our actions. We care about obedience. We care about the things that God cares about. But human effort will never be enough. God's people are not chosen because of our works, but we are chosen because of the grace that comes through Jesus Christ. We're not called to try to grasp that. We're to be sobered by the truth of it all, to allow that to sink in, to be humbled to the point where we can begin to put others first. Because God is working in us. And He's birthing this desire to please Him within us. And as that bubbles up, and as it begins to serve our brothers and sisters, the church will increasingly become united. And then it becomes faithful to the call. But this unity will only happen if we can get beyond ourselves. And until then, we are at risk of disunity. And disunity tarnishes our testimony. And Paul is telling the church to hold on to Jesus in the face of the anxiety and struggle that comes through gray zones. And when we do this, we are demonstrating the power and truth of the Gospel to a people who don't know our hope. We become signposts to Jesus. And disunity is everywhere. It's in our homes, workplaces, neighborhoods, and even in our churches. And so we are called to hold firm, to live what we claim to believe, not in lip service, but in real service. And this is a job for everyone. Because Paul didn't write this letter to just the leaders, to just the elders and deacons. He read it to the whole people of God. This isn't just for those who are leading. It's a call for everyone to live in unity in this season of disruption and change. And there will be temptation. There'll be temptation for us to flee or to freeze. There'll be temptations for us to fight or to hoard. We'll be tempted to seek control. But remember, control never works. It never succeeds. And it only serves to raise up our anxiety and root us in fear. So seek the welfare of others and have the attitude of Jesus. It's not always easy to do. 
And it comes down to understanding the difference between control and agency. To commend when you have an opportunity and to give it to God so that we don't try to live in this moment where we're trying to force things to happen. But we just trust that if we're faithful, our, our lives will serve as a signpost to Jesus and then we leave the rest with Him. In life, only God has control. We don't live inside a rigid set of norms. I said last week, we are not robots. But we are called to live of one mind. And that one mind is that Jesus is Lord and in command. And even in our differences of opinions, these are moments for us to still live in unity with one another. See, Paul wants us to have mutual affection and for that affection to influence the way we interact with one another despite of our differences to show how much we love Jesus by showing how much we love one another. And we have a lot of differences. Even in our small little church, we are not always in agreement. And that is okay. I'm not always right. You're not always wrong. We have opportunities to learn from one another and to grow. And grow we will. And I think we have an opportunity to learn. Jesus, when He became flesh and He lived among us, He showed us the way and how we are to enter the world focusing on the Father pouring our lives out for others, but to give of ourselves to serve. Not in a way that seeks our own good, but in a way that draws others together so that we live the faithful called life as the church, the people of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I think, helps us figure this out practically. He says we're to hold our tongues and refuse to speak negatively about one another. This one's really hard. Because when somebody slights you or someone's engaged in behavior that is destructive or you're in a situation where you don't agree, it's really hard not to talk about the other person in a negative way in order to, to make yourself feel better. But we're called not to do that. To cultivate humility. And it comes from understanding that our, our brothers and our sisters, those in the world around us, they, like us, are sinners in need of grace. And the moment we think that we are better or we're not as sinful or we're not as in need of grace is the moment we actually slip over that line and we move into judgment. It doesn't mean we don't discern, but it means we remember how much we needed grace. Jesus died a bloody, painful death on a cross so that I could stand up here this morning and share with you, and I have no business being up here. None. It is the grace of Christ that allows me to do this. Bonhoeffer says to listen long and patiently. And sometimes that's hard to do, especially when your pastor's prattling on for 30 minutes. 
but we need to understand the needs of others and to take the time to listen to them even when it's hard. Refuse to consider our time and calling so important that we don't have time for others. This is really hard in ministry, but even in business we can be really, really busy that we don't take time to listen to others. We consider what we're doing to be more important. Bear the burden of our brothers and sisters in the Lord by preserving their freedom and forgiving their sinful abuse of that freedom. We're not good at this. I have watched in, in points of disagreement where churches or individuals recognizing that their brother or sister is doing something they believe to be wrong, and it very well might be, but we lose sight of that that they have freedom. God has given us each a choice. And we aren't able to allow them to have that freedom. And we wrestle forgiving them when they abuse that freedom. We're called to declare God's Word to our fellow believers when they need to hear it. So instead of judging them for their abuse of freedom, we're called to come to them with grace and remind them of Scripture and what God says. This is a balance that's hard to maintain. We're to understand that Christian authority is characterized by service that doesn't call attention to ourselves. It's so easy as we do things to become prideful. One more note. Serving others does not mean they get to set the agenda. It's not being forced into serving others in a way that betrays our own morals and values. Sometimes serving others, it means we are saying no in a loving way. When we believe our brothers and sisters are doing actions that are harmful, we're called to graciously correct them. But graciously correct them. So that it doesn't bring disunity. And so we hold firm. I began this morning with the humorous note of Cheering for a winning team is so much better. And it really is much better. And this is what happens when we get outside ourselves and we actually seek to engage and bless and help others in doing what they've been called to do. Because when we place our own interests behind the interests of others, it's like cheering for a winning team. We get out of our own anxiety and fear and we get a front row seat on what God is doing in the lives of those we're serving. We help them win. And when they do, we are cheering for a winner. And it's amazing because when they're up, I'm up. Jesus, in his, one of His last recorded prayers, asks God to protect the unity of His disciples. And He extends this to His church for all time to be united and to obey His prayer, to fulfill His call, and to live as He did in a world that needs to be loved. We're called to love the unlovely, the unlovable, the loveless. And in other words, people just like you and me. I think this is a word for our day. I think that there's so much confusion that our anxiety is building and that building of anxiety leads to fear. 
And through the words of Paul, Jesus reaches out to his church today and says, the antidote to fear is love. And that love comes by looking outside of yourself and focusing on the needs of your brothers and sisters. I see that every day here. I'm encouraged when I see it every day here. And now I want to pray that we will continue to remain faithful to this call and grow in love for one another in a world that so desperately needs Jesus. Lord, I lift this up to you. It is a privilege to be your people. And Lord, all of us at some point find ourselves distracted by the gray zone. And Lord, you don't condemn us in that. Your grace is sufficient. So Lord, this morning we ask that you would help us to see where we have become myopic, inward-focused, self-centered. We ask that your grace would come into the midst of that. Your spirit would soften our hearts to the needs of others. But Lord, your grace would cover that, that you would forgive us, help us to turn outward. Lord, for those areas that we're serving our brothers and sisters, help us not to lose sight of why we're doing that. Help us to maintain good self-care. but Help us to grow in being a people of love and care for others. And Lord, ultimately we thank you for the way you do that for us even now. That you sit at the right hand of the Father and you advocate for us. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that you chose to come. That you chose to suffer as a slave. That you chose to die a criminal death on the cross so that you could serve humanity and bridge the gap that we could never cross. Lord, I pray for each and every person here, each and every person listening on the stream, you would come into the midst of whatever gray zone they may be feeling and that you would bring them that sense of peace. Help them to see how they can love another. And out of that, may we become a united church with one mind serving Fort Saskatchewan and beyond. Lord, we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.